Again, you can stay standing and turn to the book of Amos in your Bibles. If you have one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 764. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, there are Bibles in the back on the tables. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to grab one and take it home with you uh, this morning. But again, we are in Amos. This morning, we are looking at chapters 1 and 2. The book of Amos divides up uh, quite neatly into three sections. Chapters 1 and 2, and 3 through 7, and then 8 and 9. Actually, 3 through 6, then 7 through 9. Uh, and so we are going to be handling the book of Amos in three sermons, covering each of these ma major sections as we're going through all of the minor prophets uh, in about 36 weeks. If we spent one week per chapter, we would be in them for years. So uh, we're handling them uh, more as chunks, especially the book of Amos, so again, this week we are in Amos 1 and 2. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion. And utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Beth Hadad. <clears throat> I will break the gate bar of Damascus, and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile in Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds. With shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. 
So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Man and his father go in to the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who had been fine. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides on the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is challenging to spend so many weeks in a row in the Minor Prophets, hearing again and again of your judgment and punishment towards sin. But we know that in the midst of this judgment, there is hope in the gospel. So we ask as we spend time this week and over the next couple of weeks in Amos, that you would open our eyes to see our sin to see our wickedness and all of its ugliness and in reality, that we would be able to confess it to you and repent of it and turn to you and find the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would speak to us this morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So all the way back, way, way back in 2005, when I was 12 years old, the New York Times released an opinion piece titled, Is Persuasion Dead? by a columnist named Matt Miller. Is Persuasion Dead? Alongside that main question, he asks the question, is it possible in America today to convince anyone of anything he doesn't already believe? Is it possible in America today, and 
he was writing in 2005, but we can ask that same question in 2022. Is it possible in America today to convince anyone of anything he doesn't already believe? To which he provides the gloomy answer, the signs are not good. 90% of political conversation amounts to dueling talking points. Best-selling books reinforce what folks thought when they bought them. Talk radio and opinion journals preach to the converted. Let's face it, the purpose of most political speech is not to persuade, but to win, be it power, ratings, celebrity, or even cash. Now remember again, this was written all the way back in 2005. Now for Miller, the problem was what he calls preaching to the converted. Maybe a more common way of saying that that you've heard is the phrase preaching to the choir. What that means is trying to convince people that already agree with you. So instead of seeking to try to persuade others, we seek instead to rally the troops that already agree with us. Now, if this was an issue way back in 2005, it's probably more an issue today as we live in this increasingly digital world of podcasts, blogs, articles, social media. It's extremely easy for people to create echo chambers for themselves, seeking out the voices that will most loudly and boldly proclaim to them what they already believe. In this environment, it's easy for podcasters, for politicians, and for even preachers to only ever speak to their own camp. Now, that's, a, that's an error that I know that I even fall into uh, far more often than I would like to admit. Now, there's a time for preaching to the choir. There's a time to stir up people to a deeper trust in that which they already believe. But that cannot be all that we ever do. Now, I see two great dangers for Christians when preaching to the choir becomes the primary method of communication for us. The first issue is that we fail to gently and respectfully persuade non-Christians as we, as we seek to give a reason for our hope. So essentially, in an environment where our communication is littered with preaching to the choir, evangelism and apologetics die. Out of a desire to rally the remnant to a bold stand against the world, we forget our calling to be messengers of the hope of the gospel to those who are in desperate need of the saving news of Jesus Christ. Now, the second danger in preaching to the choir is what we're going to see in Amos chapters 1 and 2 this morning. The second great danger of preaching to the choir is that we fail to confront the choir. We fail to confront the choir. Now, we can do this in many different ways, but perhaps the most common is to focus either on the sins and issues that are most comfortable for your audience, right? We can probably think uh, of our own camp and say, what are the sins and issues that we want that preacher to call out? But what are the issues that maybe would hit too close to home that we'd rather he shy away from? Or, on the other side, we like to focus on the sins and issues of other people and of other groups. Let's be honest. 
We love to hear about other people's issues, their ignorance, their inconsistencies. We love to post about it online and laugh at memes that make fun of all of those other people and their problems. But again, if we are honest, we don't like it when our issues, our ignorance, our inconsistencies are brought to light. Christian preachers and Christian teachers in particular have a duty not to say what people want to hear, but what people need to hear. The word of God. And this isn't only a lesson for preachers. I'm not just preaching this morning to me and Josh, Chris, and Bill. This is something for all Christians. Preachers have a responsibility for our preaching, but you have a responsibility for your listening and also for the way that you communicate in our world. There's a warning to you. Don't heap up for yourself teachers who will tell you what your itching ears desire to hear. Be willing to be confronted by the word of God. So the big takeaway from the first two chapters of Amos this morning, here's our big idea. God's word confronts us, not just them. Of course, there's probably way too much dividing up of the world between us and them these days, but you understand where I'm going with this. God's word confronts us, not just them. Now, before I flesh out that idea as we look through these first two chapters, I think it'll be helpful for me to lay a little bit of contextual groundwork with some background information from the book of Amos that will help bring to light what we see here in chapters one and two and over the next couple of weeks. So let's look at some background information that we get from the first couple of verses and will set the stage for us going forward. So uh, if you have your Bibles open, look with me to verses 1 and 2. Particularly right now, look at verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So just in this one verse, we get a great picture of the author, the audience, and the setting, all wrapped up in one here. So we learn about the author, the prophet Amos. We don't just learn his name, we actually learn his occupation. He's called a shepherd. And then later in chapter 7, he's also going to be called a dresser of sycamore figs, which means he is a man who would go and pierce the fruit of the sycamore fig tree, which would help the fruit to ripen. So we can think of this, of this man, a shepherd, a cultivator of trees, right? He's an agricultural type man. He's a farmer. He would probably fit in pretty well in many places in Wisconsin. He's not, though, a, a priest. He's not the son of a priest. He's not the son of a prophet. He's more of an ordinary guy living in a small town in Judah. So it was God's calling and God's word that made him unique, not any qualifications that he bore in and of himself. It's this man named Amos. And we see where he is from as well, again, that he is from the city of Tekoa, a small town in Judah, a little over 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And there's a significance there that Amos is from Judah, the southern kingdom. And the significance here is who he was then called to preach to. So he is from Judah, but who was his audience? Says the words of Amos, who is among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw. So 
That's language saying that this is a revelation from God. So the words that he, re- he received from God concerning Israel. So he was a prophet from Judah, from the southern kingdom, called to declare this message to the northern kingdom of Israel. And we'll see the significance of that in a little bit. We also, in this first verse, get a sense of the timing of the book of Amos. So it says that it was written during the reign of King Uzziah, the king of Judah, and King Jeroboam II. So this is the second King Jeroboam, not to be confused with the first king of Israel, Jeroboam. Jeroboam II in Israel. And then he narrows it down even more for us. This is very specific. It's very helpful for us. He says, two years before the earthquake. Now, there's some debate about exactly what is meant by the earthquake, but a couple things. One, we can be sure that the original readers would have known what this earthquake is because he just mentioned the earthquake. So clearly this was a huge event, something that would have been very memorable in the life of Israel and Judah. And also archaeologists and scholars uh, can generally, looking back at the information, place this major earthquake somewhere between 765 and 760 B.C., which places this book about 40 years before the northern kingdom of Israel was absolutely wiped out and destroyed by the Assyrians and carried off into exile. So there's this context of impending doom in this book. There's this context, right? If you've watched a a TV show or a movie where it begins and there's chaos and then all of a sudden it shoots back and says two years earlier and life is all peaceful and wonderful and you're saying, how did we... How did we get to this chaos from what we're seeing now that it's doing a flashback and taking us back in time to this time where everything looks good and looks peaceful? So there's this impending doom, both from this earthquake that we know is about to befall the the northern kingdom of Israel. And also, as the readers, we know that 40 years later, they're going to be absolutely destroyed. And that's significant because during this era of Israel, there was great prosperity, peace and wealth. It was actually probably the most prosperous season in all of Israel's history, at least the northern kingdom of Israel. Everything was going well for them. The Assyrians, who were their greatest enemies, were off fighting wars off on their other borders, which allowed Israel during this time to grow and expand, to focus on commerce and trade. There was great wealth and prosperity. And in the middle of this time where everybody in Israel probably thought, or at least many people in Israel thought, everything is going well for us. God sends this prophet from this small town, the southern kingdom of Judah, to come and bring a devastating message of judgment and destruction. And then the message we see summarized in verse 2 for us. This is a summary of what Amos is going to say to them. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherd mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Again, they thought all was well, but because of their sin, God was ready to pounce on them like a roaring lion to bring devastation and ruin. But Amos doesn't begin with confronting Israel. He actually begins by confronting the surrounding nations. So we're going to do two points this morning, to keep it simple for us. And the first is, God's word confronts them. God's word confronts them. So what makes Amos 
unique as a prophetic book is not as much its message or its content of judgment. We've already seen in Hosea and we'll continue to see over and over again through the minor prophets this message of judgment and punishment for sin. So that's not really unique to Amos. What makes Amos unique, at least one of the things that makes Amos unique, is how he communicates his message, not just what the message is. Only the book of Amos starts with this extended judgment towards the nations. Other prophetic books proclaim judgment on the nations, but none do it in the way that the book of Amos does. We'll talk about the significance of that in just a few minutes, but first, let's take a look at these oracles of judgment against the nations that we see in chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 3. So if you take a look at these verses, you're going to see that there are six oracles of judgment against the nation surrounding Israel, followed by an oracle of judgment against Judah. We don't have the time this morning to dive into the particulars of every single one of these oracles of judgment, but there are a couple things that I think are significant that are worth noticing. The first, if you look at these oracles, you're going to notice that there is a distinct literary pattern that pops up again and again and again. Even as I was reading it, you probably re- like, just felt like, isn't James just saying the same thing over and over again? Right? We see this pattern. There's this four-part pattern that we see in every single one of these declarations. It begins with, thus says the Lord. So this is a reminder to the hearers that this message doesn't come from Amos, ultimately. Right? This is God's message for these nations. This is God's message for God's people. Thus says the Lord. The second step that we see, second stage, for three transgressions of, insert place here, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, there's a little bit of debate about exactly what that means. Some uh, commentators take it as adding up three and four to to equal seven so that their transgressions are complete or full. Uh, I think a good way to look at it, though, is to see it as emphasizing how the sins of these nations are continuing and increasing. So it's not just saying you used to be sinning for three transgressions and for four. Your transgressions are ongoing and they're increasing in their severity from three to four for each of these nations. Next, in each of these oracles, if you take a look, you'll see all of them after that phrase have one word. Because every single time, God gives a reason for his judgment. He lays out their sins to these nations. And then all of them end with a picture of the punishment that is coming their way, which begins with the phrase, so I will send a fire upon so and so a place. So there's this literary pattern that we see repeated over and over and over again, but there's also a geographical pattern pattern going on. I love maps. We have multiple maps in our house of Scandinavia, of Wisconsin. I could just stare at a map. I was at the Demers house this last week with most of their kids staring at a map of Middle Earth, talking about all the stories and how they traced around Middle Earth. I love maps. So if you look at a map of Israel and you try to plot what's going on here with these surrounding nations, there's going to be a pattern that emerges for you. So these oracles start in the north, uh, in the northeast with Damascus. Then it traces a line to the southwest, to Gaza, then to the northwest, to Tyre, then to the southeast with Edom, and then ends by focusing right in the center east with the Ammonites and Moab. 
And then, bef- then it dives into the center to Judah and Israel. But what Amos is doing is he's literally drawing this huge X on the map for these people right over Israel. Or you can see that maybe he's like drawing a bullseye around Israel. Obviously, they don't have any nations on their west because of the Mediterranean Sea. But he's covering systematically every single nation on the border of Israel. And he's condemning them, every single one, for their terrible violence, for murder, for slavery, for torture, for greed. And then in the seventh oracle in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, he again, he dives into the center of that bullseye a bit to Judah, the home of Jerusalem, the, the home of the line of King David. And God declares to them judgment in the exact same pattern that we saw, Right? Thus says the Lord for three transgressions and for four, because so I will send a fire upon, right? He sends the same judgment to Judah. Now, there are three implications or applications of this that I want to highlight through these, through most, all of uh, chapter one and in a little ways into chapter two. Three implications or applications. First, what we see here is that God is the king of every nation, And all people, kings and kingdoms, are accountable to him. God is the Lord of every nation. The lordship of God did not stop at the border of of Judah. did not stop at the border of Israel. The kingship of God does not stop at the doors of the church. God's lordship is over all. Second, second application here. God will judge his people for unrepentant sin, just like he will the other nations. God will judge his people for unrepentant sin, just like he does with the other nations. Judah here might be God's covenant people and recipients of of all of the benefits that comes with that. But when they live in rebellion and when they live in unrepentant sin, they they receive the exact same punishment that the surrounding nations receive, the fire of God. And this is a pointed warning for us in the church, right? We are the household of God, but it's necessary for the people of God, for us to be warned that unrepentance is met with the judgment of God. You cannot just bank on the fact that you are a member of a church if you are not trusting in Jesus and repenting of your sin. And in a way, sin is even more wicked when it's done by those who have received the law of God. That's the third application here. God's lordship over the nations is distinct from his lordship over his covenant people. God's lordship over the nations is distinct from his lordship over his covenant people. If you look at that because clause for Judah, you're going to notice that something is different than when he lists all the sins of the other nations. For the other nations, they were judged for their violence, their wickedness, for murder, for slavery, for all these general acts of wickedness. But when it gets to Judah, what is Judah condemned for? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. And just a side note, that's a great encouragement for fathers and for parents in general, right? You have a great responsibility 
to lead your children to know the Lord, and you can either lead them in the path of righteousness, but in this case, we see that there's also the opportunity for fathers and for parents in general to lead your children into wickedness. So recognize they are going to follow you one way or another. Are you setting a good example? Are you leading them to know the Lord? But again, that's just a side note for us. We have to recognize that the people that have received the law of God and all of the benefits of his covenant are held to a different standard than other people. There's actually a way in which our unrepentance is met with more of the judgments of God than the unrepentance of those who have not received the law of God in the same way. We need to be careful as God's people. There's great blessing for those who trust in Jesus. But as we saw in the book of Hebrews when we went through it, there's also great warnings for people who have heard from God's word and have heard the gospel, but yet refuse to believe and repent of their sin. All people are accountable to God, but his covenant people are uniquely accountable as recipients of God's covenant and God's word. But with all of this, you might say, James, what does this have to do with preaching to the choir? I feel like you're going off track here a little bit. Well, this is where we have to remember who's receiving these oracles. And the answer is Israel. Amos was called to preach to Israel. So all of these oracles of judgment against the nations weren't actually proclaimed to the nations themselves. These oracles of judgment against the nations were proclaimed to Israel. Amos is a prophet coming from Judah up to Israel probably would not have been received very well. And many commentators believe, and I agree, that he starts off with his judgment to the nations to get his audience on board for a moment. As he's proclaiming judgment on all these other nations and on Judah, the people of Israel are probably nodding their head right along. Or they're saying the occasional amen, right? Or preach it, preacher, which you are all allowed to say. I know we're a Presbyterian church, but you can say amen every once in a while. Okay, right, Andrew? Okay, thank you. Amen. Right? They're, they're loving this. They are loving as God is saying, I'm going to destroy you, Edom. I'm going to destroy you, Damascus. And even Judah, I'm going to come for you. Israel says, yes, this is good. We love criticisms of other people, especially those people we consider to be our enemies. This is a hard check for us. Whatever camp you might be in or how you self-identify yourself in the Christian world, do you love it when the preacher confronts prosperity preachers, mainline Protestants, American evangelicals, Catholics, or that nebulous term, the culture, right? You love it when the preacher says, those silly, ignorant people. Yes, you get them, preacher. But what happens when the preacher then turns his message right on you? Which is exactly what Amos does. Many times the choir needs to be confronted. So the first point was that God's word confronts them. But here we see the second point. God's word confronts us. God's word confronts us. Israel had just heard seven oracles of judgment climaxing, or at least they would have thought, climaxing with judgment against Judah. Now, with there being seven oracles of judgment, and with the apparent climax with Judah, they probably would have thought that Amos was done. He had had his complete message, he'd given his nice 
seven points, he's done. But then Amos, kind of like a little bit of an unwanted encore, adds an eighth point that they probably didn't see coming. An eighth point that is like the previous seven, but is three times as long. And who does he bring the judgment to now? He brings it to Israel. And there are two major issues with Israel highlighted in these verses. Injustice and idolatry. Injustice and idolatry. These verses are packed with injustice, as is the entire book of Amos. And actually, if we're honest, most of the Bible. So speaking of preaching to the choir, if the word injustice makes you feel squirmy, then perhaps this is a great opportunity for you to let scripture make you uncomfortable. Okay? And as we go through the rest of the book of Amos. So look at verses 6 through 7 with me. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. This is where the context helps. Israel was an incredibly wealthy and prosperous nation at this point. But that prosperity was equally matched by the plight of the poor in Israel. In Israel's case, the prosperity of the wicked was was built upon the oppression of the poor, especially twisting their justice system at the expense of the poor and the vulnerable, something that God had expressly forbidden in his law to Israel. They were meant to watch out for and care for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner, something that they failed again and again to do. Verse 6 is likely talking about judges in Israel being willing to take bribes from the wealthy so that a case would be ruled in their favor over and against the poor. So those in Israel who were particularly called to watch out for and protect the poor, the widow, and the fatherless had forsaken their duty. They were willing to take silver. They were even willing to take bribes as small as a pair of sandals to be bribed by the rich at the expense of the poor. Dr. Michael McKelvey, professor at RTS Jackson, wrote a great commentary on Amos. And he says, social injustice is another major issue addressed in the book of Amos. The rich were oppressing the poor. Corruption was pervasive. Self-aggrandizement, which is greed, was the norm. And remarkable indifference to the plight of others and the immoral state of society was common. It's a challenge for us. Do we care for the needy in our life? Who are the vulnerable that God has put in our care? This is a great call for us as a church as well, not just individually, but as a church to care about mercy ministry, to give to our mercy ministry fund, to hope someday that we train up and establish a diaconate, people who can serve our church and serve the needy in our city as a part of our calling as a church and as a part of our witness to the gospel. 
Let us value that part of our calling. We also see here that the passage connects their injustice to their idolatry. The second half of verse 7 through verse 8 speak about terrible sexual immorality. But it's not just sexual immorality that's challenged here. There's this mention of lying down beside altars, drinking in the house of their God. It ties this sexual immorality to false worship, practices that would have been very common in that day with cult prostitutes and other forms of sexual immorality tied with worship. But he's tying here false worship of God, idolatry, to their injustice against the poor and the needy. This is a huge emphasis throughout the book of Amos. The connection between the two great commandments given to the people of God, to love the Lord your God and to love your fellow man. Again, to quote McKelvey, since they failed to love God, they inevitably failed to love their fellow man. And again, a chance for us to look at our own lives, to look at our own hearts. Our New Testament reading in James this morning gave us this charge. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, even in James, we see the connection between the worship of God and the care for others. Do you want your religion and your worship and all of your theology, all of your singing to be acceptable to God? Do you care for your neighbor? Here's the hard truth, right? If you love God, you will love your neighbor. On the flip side, if you fail to love your neighbor, it very well may, might be the case that you don't love God. If you fail to love your neighbor, you just might not love God. Now, I need to be really clear what I am and what I am not saying this morning. I'm not promoting what is called the social gospel. Our hope is not ultimately in fixing our culture by our own efforts. Our only hope is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through faith in him and repentance over our sin. Social change is not the gospel, but there are social implications for those who believe the gospel. Care for the poor, widow, orphan, and foreigner does not save you. You can do all of the best work in our culture that you possibly can. You can give all of your money to the poor, but if you do not trust in Jesus, your plight is worse than the rich man who repents. To steal a quote that I heard last week at Emmaus Road by Dane Ortland, a penitent murderer goes to heaven. An impenitent orphanage founder goes to hell. That may offend you, but anything else is works righteousness. I think that's a helpful quote for us. This does not save you. But if this does not mark you, it very well might mean that you don't actually know God and the gospel. Look at verses 9 through 12 with me. We see this connection made for us. I'm not just making this up. God reminds them of all that he had done for them. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the promised land. He destroyed the Amorite before them, those who dwelled in the land. So he lists off all of these things. Look what I've done for you. 
O Israel. And even still, you practice this injustice and idolatry? After all that I have done for your redemption, should not the pity and mercy of God on us when we were weak, poor, and dead in sin spur us on to love God by showing mercy and pity to those who are in need? And chapter 2 ends with the result of this injustice and idolatry. The result is inescapable judgment. Inescapable judgment. Verse 13, behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. So this is a cart that is way overloaded, has way too much stuff on it. It pushes down, its wheels dig into the dirt underneath it. Or you can think of Lamez with a broken cart falling on the man. It's, it's, it's crushing him. It's pinning him down. The judgment of God is going to press them down. It's going to crush them. This is not comfortable language for the hearers, right? Then look at verses 14 through 16 with me. And I want you to notice here all of the people that are mentioned in these verses. It mentions the swift, the strong, the mighty, the archer. Then again, it mentions the swift, the horseman, the stout of heart. And then it ends again with the mighty. What can none of these people do, though, in these verses? None of them can save themselves. With the destruction coming upon Israel, these are exactly the people in Israel that you would think could spare their own lives. They are the ones that can avert this disaster. But we have this long list, swift, strong, mighty, archers, horsemen, stout of heart. None of them stand any chance against the judgment of God. There is no hope and no chance for them to save themselves. Do we think that we can save ourselves? Whether it's by our our good works, our charity, through being better than that other guy that we like to talk about, that other group that has everything wrong. Do we think that our own righteousness, our own goodness, can save us from the judgment of God? There's this joke when you're hiking that you don't need to outrun the bear. You just need to outrun the other person that you're hiking with. Perhaps you've heard that. Right? Which means I stand no chance when I'm hiking with Lexi. She's actually an incredibly fast sprinter. So, and I'm carrying a heavier backpack than her. So it probably wouldn't be good, good for me. Right? That might work with a bear. Right? You run faster so they eat the other person and you survive. But that does not work with God. You can run as fast as you can. It's not going to work out for you. God's word confronted the nations. God's word confronted Judah, and God's word confronted Israel. God's word doesn't just confront our culture. It doesn't just confront our world. God's word confronts us, and it warns us of the serious consequences of our sin. But is there hope for the confronted? The resounding answer is yes. Yes. But our hope is not found in our efforts. What is our hope? Turn with me to the end of the book of Amos. Amos chapter 9. I know I'm giving something away for the sermon in two weeks, but I want to keep this in front of us as we walk through what seems like despair and hopelessness through the book of Amos. Let's keep these verses in front of us. Amos 9 verses 11 through 12. 
In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnants of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Amos begins his book with judgment against the nations and judgment against the people of God. But he ends his book with salvation, not only for the people of God, but notice the mention of the nations there. For all of the nations that are called by God. What brings about this salvation and this restoration and hope at the end of the book of Amos? It comes specifically through the raising up of the booth of David. These are a great couple of verses for Advent, for Christmas season. The hope of God's people is centered on the coming of a king who would reign on the throne of David forever. During Advent and Christmas, and then also as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, what we celebrate is the coming of that king. We remember the Savior who has come as a king who was born to die, a king whose blood would be poured out in our place, who would be crushed under the weight of God's judgment, who would bear in our place the judgment, the fire, the destruction, so that we might be the recipients of God's mercy. For three transgressions and for four of God's people, God did not revoke the punishment. But because of his great mercy and love, the punishment, the fire was borne by Jesus so that we might be reconciled to God. We celebrate in this season not just the hope that Jesus has come, but the hope that he will one day again return. That Jesus will put an end once and for all to all wickedness, injustice, and sin so that all who trust in him may dwell forever with him in eternal peace and eternal joy. This is good news. Let's pray. Father, again, we confess that we often seek our own righteousness. We know that we're imperfect, but we like to point the finger and say, well, we're not as imperfect as that person. And we seem to think that that's going to make us acceptable to you. But, oh God, we are confronted by our sin, and we see it. Help us to be those who acknowledge it, who in humility and honesty confess it, repent of it, and turn to Jesus Christ, the promised King of David, through whom restoration, hope, peace, and joy are found. Make us a people of faith, who love you, know you, and then in response, love and serve our neighbor. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.